Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and today we will be reading from verses 10 through 19. I'm Byron Bradshaw. I'm an elder and the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church, but I assume most of you probably know that. And uh, today we are reading from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. I'm using the New American Standard 1995 edition, and then I will read it with you all. It says this, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Yes, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I shall show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. And now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So that is the scripture reading today, and our, the speaker this morning is Bobby Tibbles, and I'll go ahead and introduce him to you. Many of you already know him, and he's spoken here at Calvary, but I will go ahead and revisit. Bobby Tibbles serves as pastor and activities director at The Vision, a Christian camp and retreat center in South Huntsville. Bobby has been pursuing pastoral ministries for over 20 years, and has been blessed to receive equipping through formal education and hands-on experience. Bobby has served as youth pastor, associate pastor, senior pastor, and campus pastor. Bobby has been married to the love of his life, Connie, for 29 years. They have four adult children and eight grandchildren. If you would please welcome Bobby Tibbles to the stage with me. Well, thank you. Let me first apologize. Um, So... I had intended on preaching from another passage, so if you've reviewed your bulletin, you've probably noted that it says uh, that we'd be preaching on prayer this morning from Luke 18, and the truth is, up until last night, I had intended on preaching on that. In fact, it's a great message, and if you guys have two hours, we can do both of them. (laughs) But uh, I feel like this is uh, the direction the Lord wanted me to go this morning, so we're going to look at... Uh, the book of Acts this morning. What I'm going to be speaking to you about um, is being useful to God. Useful. When he saved us, he left us here for a purpose. That was to serve him, to fulfill his eternal agenda. And so we have to be in shape to do that. So I just kind of want to start with a question. So... Raise your hand uh, if the answer is yes to this question. Have you heard of a little boat called Titanic? 
Okay. All right. Everybody threw their hands up. How about a little boat called Hector? How about a little boat called Neptune? Okay, got a few for Neptune. All right, everybody's familiar with Titanic. Everybody knows that great big ship. They know its voyage and its demise and all that's associated with that vessel. But not many people are associated with the smaller vessels, the little tugboats that helped get that ship out of port. You know, those big boats, they can't get out of port on their own. So they have to be drug out by these little tugboats. And so Hector and Neptune were two of the boats that helped uh, get Titanic out of harbor. Now, this isn't going to be a discovery documentary about tugboats, but it's important to understand um, the correlation between these smaller vessels that really never ever get any kind of credit or acclaim for all of the hard work that they do, um, but they're extremely useful, extremely useful. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you ever heard of a fellow called Paul? Okay, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, if that helps. <laughs> all right, so almost everybody raises their hand to that question, and I expect uh, all of you good Bible students will raise your hand to this question as well. How about Ananias? All right, not as many, but still some. Ananias was the tugboat servant that got the big boat Paul out to harbor. So we're going to talk about Ananias uh, this morning. Ananias shows up on the pages of Scripture in a very small window. Uh, there's not much that's said about him. We don't know a whole lot uh, about who he is, uh, other than where he was from. Don't know much about his personality, his gifting, how the Lord had equipped him. He doesn't tell us any of those things. And I expect because he doesn't want us to think that we have to be just like Ananias to be used. Uh, we don't know his marital status, how many kids he had, what kind of job he had. The only window that we have into this man's life is the window that we're going to look at this morning. And in this little glimpse of his life, we can learn some incredible things about being useful to the Lord. So, uh, the big idea this morning is to be useful to God, be committed, be available, be obedient, and be impactful. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for your word for the testimony of it, uh, for the witness uh, of the stories of, of the people uh, that participated in the ministry of reconciliation and what their lives um, mean to us, what their witness means to us. Lord, there's something here in this window of Ananias' life and his response to you um, that is meaningful to us. Lord, as servants that desire to please you, that desire to be useful to you. Um, help us to glean from this passage those things that would make us more useful. Help us to apply them, uh, not just hear them, receive them, but help us to apply them in our lives so that you can make use of our lives. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so the first thing that we see from Ananias' life is that he was a committed servant. So look at verse 10 again. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And we might be inclined just to kind of skip over uh, that simple statement that he was a disciple, but I don't want us to skip over it because within that term, uh, we glean an understanding of what real commitment is. So Ananias was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as we're all aware, the term disciple actually means pupil or learner or student uh, or follower. That's what it means to be a disciple. But what does it actually mean? What did it mean in the context of their time to be a student, an adult man, a student of another man? Um, in the ancient world, you had uh, great religious leaders that were teachers of various things, teachers of philosophy, teachers of different religions. Uh, and these teachers would glean a number of followers, people that said, I like what you're saying, I like the way that you're living, and I kind of want to learn from you. And so they would attract these learners that would come and that would follow them. And sometimes it was just a loose band of followers, but sometimes a very strict regimen school type based following uh, where you had students who actually come and listen and learn uh, from these teachers and so this was true of the nation of Israel uh, at this time and certainly in in the Old Testament uh, is true in Israel as it was in the rest of the world Isaiah had followers uh, look at Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16 for just a second we'll just turn over to that passage so I can show you. Say chapter 8, verse 16. says, uh, Bind up the testimony. Um, seal among my disciples, among my students, among those who are learning from me. So in the time of Isaiah, we see that there were followers. I'll turn over to chapter 50 and verse 4 for just a second. In 50 and verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with my word. He wakes me morning by morning. He wakes my ear to listen as a disciple. Isaiah was familiar with the thought of having a student uh, that would follow him. Um, it, it was common practice. Elisha had actually a formal school. So much earlier than this, uh, Elisha had this formal school. Turn over to First Kings, chapter 20, and look at verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another, By the word of the Lord, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. I'm in the wrong spot there. But maybe there's a third message here that the Lord wants us to pursue. <laughs> Turn over to the second Kings. Let's go to chapter 2 there. And 
And let's look at verses 3 through 15, I believe. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. So you've got the students and then you've got the master that they've been following. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. All of us are familiar uh, with the relationship between Elisha and Elijah. We know that Elisha followed Elijah. The, the, uh, one was the master and one was the student. There was a following. There was a discipleship process that was happening, a learning, a, a pupil and a teacher relationship. And this passage goes on, but I don't want to waste our time looking at all of it in the number. But there were hundreds, hundreds of students that were enlisted in the school uh, that this passage is talking about. And this was, again, not just true of Old Testament times, but it was also true during the days of Jesus in his time. And that's why you see so frequently in the Gospels the term rabbi repeated over and over and over again. It means teacher. Um, And so you see it. Uh, uh, repeatedly, it's used of John in John chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, again, teacher, we're your students, you're our teacher. The apostle Paul, who again, formerly known as Saul, uh, was a student. And there's a reason why I want to explain all this, why I want to pursue this, so just kind of bear with me just a little bit. But Paul was the student um, of a very well-known teacher named Gamaliel. Acts chapter 22, verse 3, I'm a Jew, this is Paul talking, born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Now we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But a Jewish boy like Saul may very well have entered into this pupil-student relationship as a young child. Okay, So parents would have sought out a teacher for their children at an early age. And it is such a level of commitment that the the child would leave the home of the parents and would attach to the teacher. They would follow the teacher wherever he went, wherever he lived, they lived. Whatever he ate, they ate. Um, Whatever he taught, they sat at his feet and they listened to. When he slept, they slept. You basically reproduced your life after your teacher. You mimicked everything about him. His values became your values. His ethics became your ethics. His code became your code. His standards became your standards. So when it says that Ananias was a disciple of Jesus, it meant that he was committed to follow him. It meant that Whatever the Lord Jesus was, 
that Ananias mimicked his life completely after that. Where Jesus went, Ananias went. Again, we're talking about in the spirit, of course. But whatever Jesus believed, whatever his morals were, whatever his values were, whatever his ethics were, these became Ananias. This is what's true of a disciple. And it's not just that we adopt these things, but again, the point in the passage here is that Ananias was committed. It's that, it's that committed part of the definition of a disciple that we need to get our arms around. We throw the term around all the time. We talk about it all the time. We're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Scripture all the time. But the, the overarching concept of the level of commitment that's involved, I don't know that we fully have our arms around it. These students didn't have a life of their own. As a student of their teacher, they were told where they could go, what they could do, who they could hang out with, what kind of jobs they could have. There, there was a strict regimen for their behavior, their conduct, the way that they lived from sunup to sundown. Everything about their life was controlled, dictated to them by their teacher. Is that true of you? Everything in your life right now being dictated to you by Jesus Christ, or are there parts of your life that you've gleaned for yourself that you're holding on to, your finances, do you spend your money the way Jesus would have you spend your money, the things that you watch on TV, is it things that your teacher would say, I approve of that, go ahead and watch that, activities that you participate in? Are you pursuing him the way that a student would have in the time, in the context of the writing? Because that's what's demanded of us. So the first thing that I think we really need to get our arms around if we want to be useful to Lord Jesus Christ is this idea of a committed servant. There's no part, no aspect of my life that belongs to me. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I go where he tells me to go. I, I do what he tells me to do. My, my diet should be what he tells me it is. What he believes is right and wrong, is what I should adopt. We should be committed. Ananias was a committed servant. Don't just don't glean, just don't pass over that statement. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus. I think the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that this was a committed man, a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the first step that we have to take if we want to be useful to the Lord Jesus Christ we have to be committed we have to be committed and the things that we're still holding on to in our life that we haven't given over to him we have to commit to him the next thing that we see uh, in this passage is that Ananias was an available servant so look at verse 10 again now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. When the master calls, what does the available servant always say? Here I am. doesn't matter what he's calling you for. That's your response. Here I am, Lord. Somebody once said that the greatest ability 
in the world is availability. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. It doesn't matter how great an orator you are or how knowledgeable you are of the Scripture, whatever your compassion level or giving level, whatever your spiritual gifts are. None of that stuff matters if you don't show up, period. And I feel like the Lord is calling all of us to something, that's for sure. But I feel like there's... There, there's some in this room, the Lord's calling you to something that you're not showing up for. And there will be people that suffer because you don't show up. Ananias was an available servant. When Jesus called, he said, here I am. And the scripture's loaded with people like this. People that were willing to respond. Men and women of all ages made themselves available. When God called Abraham to offer his son Isaac in Genesis 22-2, Abraham said, here I am. That was his response. And when God called on Jacob to uproot his family and go home to face what he thought was going to be certain death, you mean, remember, he, he had left. It, there was animosity between him and his brother, so he had went away. And spent a good majority of his life building a family and a life. And the Lord said, it's time to go back. And remembered how he had left his brother. The Lord said, go back. And he says, here I am. When God called Moses from a burning bush to be the hand of deliverance for the nation of Israel. Moses said, here I am. When God called the young Samuel to be the messenger of doom for his teacher, Eli, he responded in 1 Samuel 3.10, Speak, for your servant is listening. And when God called from his throne in heaven, he's searching for a divine messenger, and he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah responded in Isaiah 6.8, Here I am, send me. Over and over and over again through the pages of Scripture, we see that God called on men and women to do great, important things for Him that impacted all of humanity. And throughout the pages of Scripture, the response is the same. For all of those servants that turned out to be useful, here I am. I'm here. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. That's where it starts, by showing up. By saying, yes, Lord, I'm willing. Whatever you have for me, that's what I want to do. And that's one of the lessons that Ananias and all of these other men and women in Scripture offer us. Be there when the Lord calls. Be available. Be present. Be willing to engage in the mission. Again, we're... Saved and left here for one purpose. That's to engage in the mission. To do the thing that he's called us to do. Everything else that we do, including what we're doing right now, we could do better in heaven. You know that? The word's going to be much better articulated in heaven. We're going to see it and understand it fully there. Worship's going to be 100% better in heaven when we can see Jesus And we're not inhibited by the sin that we're still bound to in this flesh. We'll worship better. The Word's going to be proclaimed much better in person. We'll love better. We'll be healthier. 
The only thing that we can do here that we can't do in heaven better is the mission work of spreading the gospel, of carrying the message to the people that Jesus left us here to carry it to. That's why we still exist. That's why he, when he saved us, he didn't just immediately take us home. He left us here with a purpose to carry out the word. He left us here as a servant like Ananias to carry the message, to go and touch somebody else's life. Ananias was available when the Lord called him. If you want to be used by God, you have to be available when he calls you. Ananias was also obedient. So look at verses 11 through 16. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. And this is one of the best passages in all of Scripture to me. It's just, there's a sense of humor here that can be detected. Uh, Lord, <laughs> I have heard about Ananias. Uh, are you sure? He says, I've heard about many from this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That means me, Lord. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias was obedient even though he was obviously skeptical of this guy from Tarsus. He'd heard about him. Uh, he knew the kind of havoc that he'd been going about wreaking. And at the time, you got to put yourself in Ananias' shoes, in the shoes of the early church. Saul was the greatest enemy that the church had at the time. He was the hand, the strong arm of the law that was moving against the church, to silence the church, to kill the church. He had been given legal rights to arrest, to imprison, to torture, to kill the church at will as he deemed it necessary. And so the reports were widespread about the kind of damage and havoc that he was wreaking in the early church. And Saul was an incredibly, incredibly dangerous enemy for the church. He was highly intelligent. Um, he was trained by the Pharisees, educated to the teeth. Uh, he spoke a number of different languages uh, which at the time was just absolutely unheard of. Um, Paul spoke at least three languages that we know of. Um, and most people at the time could barely speak their own language. They couldn't read. Uh, they couldn't write it for the most part. And Paul was able to do all of the above in at least three of those languages. Uh, it was such an astonishing thing that uh, it, it silenced the Romans in Hebrews, um, or in Acts rather, 2137, when they encountered him and he was able to speak in their language. 
They thought that they were just arresting a Jew, but when he was able to converse with them in their own language, it astonished them. That's literally what the passage says. It astonished them because it was such an unheard of thing in their time. Like we said before, he was the student of this guy, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is what you uh, could refer to as the president of the Sanhedrin at the time. This is kind of the Jewish version of the Supreme Court. So it's a big, big deal. And this is an incredibly high up ranking official. And Gamaliel was, in his own rights, a brilliant man. And he is still, to this day, the most quoted Jewish thinker of all time. So, uh, an incredibly respected man in his community, an incredibly intelligent man, incredibly powerful man in his own rights. And Saul uh, was one of his prized students. He was so respected, Gamaliel was, that he earned the title of Rabban, which means master teacher. Very elusive title to get a hold of. And Saul was one of his prized students. So, in addition to being highly intelligent, well-educated, Paul was also extremely zealous. And he was fiercely loyal to his Jewish traditions. He believed the things that he were doing he was doing was the right thing to do. He believed that the church of Jesus Christ needed to be eradicated. He thought that he was doing God a service by eliminating it. And so he was zealous uh, to do that. He was also zealous to climb the ladder that he had been climbing. So, and as it's testified to in Scripture over and over and over again, Saul was highly esteemed, one of the most intelligent, powerful, and most respected people in his country and in his religion. He was sort of a prodigy, if you think about it. Rising to the elite status in the Pharisaic circles, um, ambitious, he wanted to advance his Position. He wanted to advance the cause in Jerusalem. He was committed to eradicating the church. And so, again, a number of atrocities were committed against the church in his effort to do all that. Beatings, arrests, imprisonments, merciless killings of countless Christians. And when I think of Saul in this context... I kind of think of Anakin Skywalker <laughs> and his rise to power and his pursuit uh, uh, as he's marching toward the position of Darth Vader. And, and it's kind of humorous and it's, you know, Star Wars is not real. But, I mean, it's the same mindset. If you're a believer in the time and you hear the name Saul of Tarsus, that's a pretty good correlation. That's a pretty good way to think about it. You think about it in the same way uh, that you see all the people in Star Wars, when they hear the word Darth Vader, they tremble and they run the other direction. 
because he was a powerful figure that nobody wanted to encounter if they didn't have to. Saul was that guy, a powerful figure that could have you beat, imprisoned, and killed at his will. You did not want to encounter this man if you were a believer. So Ananias was understandably skeptical of Saul. He had a very justifiable, preconceived prejudice against this man. And the Lord says, go. And so Ananias says, are you sure? (laughs) Have you heard the things that he's doing, Lord? I have. I think we're guilty of the same thing. We have preconceived prejudices against certain callings. The Lord says, hey, Bobby, I I need you to go do this. I'm like, I don't know, Lord. I'm, I'm kind of afraid of that. And it might just be some kind of service or it might just be the type of service. What if the Lord calls us to minister to people of a different race? I have served in churches, believe it or not, in spite of their great love for the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the culture that they grew up in, were still very much racist. I've served in churches where people had prejudices against people with different color hair or tattoos or piercings. I've served with people that had prejudice against teenagers. (laughs) Again, an understandable bias. (laughs) I had a a friend, a great man of God, a faithful man of God, um, he came alongside of me uh, during uh, my years in school, and he said, the Lord just called me to uh, to be a help to you in any way I could, encourage you, uh, support you financially if you needed that, just to be a friend to listen to, whatever. Um, his dad was a pastor and uh, up in Tennessee. And this man had ran his entire life from God. Again, faithful lover of God, but scared to death of the thing that God might be calling him to. He, he, he told me a number of times, I am scared to death that the Lord wants me to preach. That he's going to call me to leave my career I'm going to have to go to some foreign land somewhere and and be a missionary. Uh, <laughs> he was literally just scared to death. He didn't ever want to get behind the pulpit. He had several opportunities. He was called to it several times because of the relationship uh, with his dad. And he refused to get behind a pulpit because he was scared that that would be the thing that would just seal the deal. And he just didn't want to do it. 
All of us are guilty of that from time to time. We have preconceived notions, prejudices about certain things that the Lord might call us to do against certain people he might call us to minister to. Ananias had a legitimate one. I mean a legitimate concern. And his response was one of obedience. He was skeptical uh, of the man. He was also skeptical of the command. It just didn't make any sense to Ananias. Yet, bear in mind, we see the whole picture now. We get the big window. We know what happens with Saul. We know he turns into Paul. He becomes one of the most influential characters in all of Christian history. And we see the big picture. At the time, Ananias didn't have any of that. All that Ananias had was what he had heard about the man named Saul from Tarsus. That's all that he had. And so when Jesus says, I want you to go to him, to this killer of the church, and I want you to go put your hands on him, it's just the command didn't make any sense. It seemed like nonsense to him. And again, the scriptures are just replete with these kinds of commands that just don't make any sense in the moment. Noah was commanded to build a boat on dry land. It had never rained before. That command just doesn't make sense. Moses was told to strike a rock to get water out of it. Now, you don't have to have all the technology that we have today to understand that water doesn't come out of a rock. Right? Moses understood this. The command didn't make any sense. The Israelites were told to march around Jericho seven times for seven days. It didn't make sense. What was that going to do? How does that impact anything? How does that help us? What does that do for the city? It didn't make any sense. Ezekiel had some tough commands. Uh, he was supposed to make a, a pretend toy replica of Israel, and then he was supposed to besiege it. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You go to the middle of the city, and you make a little toy replica of the city, and then in front of everybody, you're supposed to besiege that little city? How ridiculous, Lord. I mean, seriously. That's like, it's a, it's a garbage command. That's what it seems like. He was also told that he was supposed to lay on one side for 40 days, and he was supposed to, or for 390 days, he was supposed to roll over and lay on the other side for 40 days. For what? I mean, if the Lord comes to you today and he tells you to do any number of these things, I mean, this doesn't make sense in the context of our understanding. It made perfect sense to the Lord. He was also told, Ezekiel was, to cook bread from some really strange ingredients over human dung. Now, Ezekiel had followed every other command that the Lord had given him, but when the Lord gave him this one, he's like, Lord, I'm not cooking food over human dung. And so the Lord made some tolerances for him there. Isaiah was told to walk around naked and barefoot for three and a half years. Makes sense to you? Maybe in context, today it does. But at the time that he told Isaiah, I guarantee you, I can relate a little bit to probably what Isaiah was thinking. God's commands do not always make sense. The things that he asks us to do do not 
always makes sense. I had just a wonderful, uh, I, I feel like it was going to be an extremely powerful message on prayer. And I, I was really looking forward to delivering that message. And then 8.30 last night, God's like, I don't think so. God's commands don't always make sense to us, but if we want to be useful to Him, we have to be obedient, whatever they are. Whatever hard thing He asks us to do, wherever He asks us to do, to go, if He asks us to walk around Huntsville naked for three and a half years, then I guess you should do it. Consult your pastor before you do to make sure that's yeah. The next point that we can see from this little window into Ananias' response to the Lord was that he was an impactful servant. So look at verses 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained the sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Again, we don't know anything about this man other than what we have in this little window. But one of the things that we know from Ananias' life is that he touched lives with his life. He made his life count because he was obedient, because he was available. He was willing to be impactful. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know how great a vessel that Paul was going to become. What he was hearing from the Lord was that Saul was going to be a servant that was going to suffer much. And that's probably the only part of the story that was really motivation for him. Yeah, this guy needs to suffer. I want to go do what you said, Lord. He didn't, he, no way that he had any idea how influential Saul from Tarsus would become. He just knew that he wanted to serve the Lord Jesus. He wanted to be impactful. He wanted to be used. He wanted to be obedient. He understood that he was just a servant, that his life was not his own, that he was bought with a price. He literally, physically, gently touched Paul's life. Sometimes ministry demands touching the untouchable. Saul certainly would have classified as the untouchable. Nobody wanted to get near him. Ministry is not as clean and neat as we would like to believe it is in the church today. It's not as organized and dressy as we make it look like. It is dirty. It is messy. People, all people, all of you, 
me, Pastor Byron, we're messed up, all of us. There is a brokenness in us that will not be fully resolved until the Lord Jesus returns and makes us complete in him. And it is, it's, it's messy work dealing with other believers, but you step outside the walls of the church into the world, it's nasty. It's dirty business. And most people don't want to get involved with it. Jesus did. Jesus was always willing to touch the untouchable. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, this contains the story of one of the lepers that Jesus had encountered. And again, just one of many that he encountered and dealt with and loved and Verses 12 through 13 says, While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing. And I, I can only hear the man just, the, the begging in him and, and the, the weeping in his voice as he begs, Lord, if you are willing. Uh, throw yourself back in time. We don't deal with leprosy today either, but this was a lifestyle where you were isolated from everybody on planet Earth. The only people that you had any kind of connection with whatsoever at all were other lepers. There was a law that you had to stay outside of the camp for the Jews, and if you were outside of the Jewish uh, law system, you were still forced to stay away from everybody else because there was no cure for leprosy at the time. It's a dreadful disease that affects the nerves, it destroys the senses in the body and because you can't feel anything, you begin to rub off fingers, you begin to rub off parts of your face, you lose your toes, your tongue. It's incredibly putrid, odious, disgusting. You got sores that are oozing all the time. You smell horrible. And it's highly contagious, at least so they thought. And so you just didn't get any, near anybody that had leprosy. It was a death sentence and you're just waiting for them to die. So this man's been isolated. He hears about Jesus. He sees Jesus and he comes up to Jesus and he begs and he says, Lord, if you're willing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stretches out his hand, and it says that he grasped the man. Jesus was willing to touch the untouchable. Jesus didn't have to heal this man that way. He chose to. In fact, there are a number of occasions where he healed lepers, and he told them to do this or to do that. Jesus wanted to make a point to us. This man needed something. The outcasts need something. They need to be touched. They need to be loved. And so Jesus makes a point of grasping them. And then in this story, he makes a point of telling Ananias to go put your hands on Saul. Saul was an outcast too. Saul had done wicked, horrible things to the church. 
the things that he was going to have to live with in his life, the crimes that he had committed, the atrocities that he bore in his heart. He's forgiven. He's restored in his relationship to God. He's made whole, a brand new man, just like you and me. But he's got this thing that's weighing over him. He hasn't encountered the church as a new man. He's an outcast of the church right now. And so Ananias is told to go and put his hand on him. And so Ananias gently approaches Saul. And the first interaction that Saul, Paul has with the church, the first word that he hears from another believer is brother. And it was at that moment that the scales fell off. And he could see. Ananias chose to be an impactful servant. You have to choose this. You know the right thing to do. You know where to go. You know how to serve. You've been gifted to do it. You've been called to it. Ananias still had to make the choice to go. So do you. So do I. Ananias could have refused for a number of reasons, or he could have went with bitterness in his heart. He could have been angry. He could have had a grudge against Saul. There's a lot of reason for him to do that. He could have been even half-hearted with his expressions. But he adopted the mentality of his Lord Jesus Christ as a committed servant. If Jesus thought well of him, if Jesus had purpose for him, if Jesus had a plan for him, if Jesus told me I need to accept him, then that's what I'm going to do. So, Ananias went in the Spirit of God. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. He did it exactly how God wanted him to do it. And then Ananias just disappears off the pages of Scripture. We don't know what else he did for the Lord, how many lives he touched, how many other encounters he had with unbelievers. Obviously, there was, he, he doesn't have a mega name. He's not a Paul. He didn't write just pages and pages and pages of Scripture. He won't be remembered in the same sense that Paul's remembered. But I get the sense that Ananias is okay with that. He's okay with just being a tugboat servant. The guy that gets the big ship out the water. I don't know about you, but I just want to be useful. I don't have to be a David Jeremiah or a John MacArthur. Are you okay with being the little guy, the tugboat that gets the big boat out the water? If that's your only purpose, if that's what God has you do. There's another name that many of you are probably familiar with. 
D.L. Moody. Most everybody in this room recognizes that name. You're probably somewhat familiar with that vessel and his voyage and how impactful he has been in his ministry. Many of us here today in this room are here because of the ministry of Dale Moody. How many of you know the name Edward Kimball? Probably not as many. That's the name of the tugboat that got D.L. Moody out the water. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, normal guy. Don't know a whole lot about him either except for he ministered to boys in his Sunday school class. One of those boys happened to be D.L. Moody. God called him to minister to Moody, to present the gospel to Moody. He said, it's time, Kimball, you need to go down to the shoe store where Moody's working. You need to give him the opportunity to respond to the gospel. And Kimball wrestled with this, like many of us do when the Lord calls us to be a witness. For some reason in that moment, our heart starts racing, we start sweating, palpitating. I mean, just tremendous fear comes over us. Same thing happened to Kimball. He gets down to the shoe store, in fact, and he, he walks back and forth paces, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, wrestling with himself. Am I going to obey the Lord Jesus? Am I going to go in here and present the gospel, or am I going to run? He finally just bursts through the door. He goes to the stockroom where Moody was. He did not give him an elaborate testimony, according to the biography. It was just something very simple, like you wouldn't want to receive Jesus today, would you? And there, in that stockroom, in that shoe store, Dale Moody received the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, most of you are here today because of that. And Edward Kimball. I'm asking you to be committed enough to be an Edward Kimball or an Ananias. To be available. To be obedient. To be impactful. And pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time. Pray you bless your word. Let it do what you plan for it to do. Let it work in our hearts. Help us to be useful. We desire that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.